And good morning to you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, great to be able to worship together. Thank you for coming in the middle of the summer. And uh, I was told it's a little bit hot in the back. Is it hot back there? Yeah. I'm told that it's, I see a lot of fanning going on. And so I just want to let you know that it's a lot cooler up here. In fact, I, want to, I feel like putting on a jacket or something. It's so cold up here. So the moral of the story is don't sit in the back, sit up front. All right, sorry to break the wonderful worship. Good to have Ron back. Wasn't that really great? Ron rode all the way through Canada, his homeland, on a bicycle. It's good to be with you again. This morning we're starting and continuing the book of Galatians. It's all about the law of love, living by the law of love. A little setup here. This is the kind of love that God wants for us. It comes out of uh, the theological uh, writings of Dennis the Menace. Dennis and his little friend Joey have just gotten some cookies from Mrs. Wilson. You know, Mrs. Wilson, the sweet wife of the grumpy Mr. Wilson. And as they're walking away in the picture with their cookies in their hands, Dennis says this profound thing about Mrs. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. That's how God works in our lives. He calls us into this loving relationship, and He loves us, not because we're so perfect, but because He's so perfect. And then He invites us into this relationship with God so that we can become more like Him, so that we can love other people, not because they're so nice, but because we're so nice. So that's what we're inviting ourselves into in Galatians 5, 13 through 15. And Galatians 5, 13 through 15 breaks down in these three parts. I'll read through the text. It's a short little passage. It's interesting. Verses 13, 14, and 15 probably takes about a minute and a half to read. And that's the beauty of being a pastor. Pastors are able to take something that takes a minute and a half to read and turn it into 40 minutes of just... uh, other words. So that's what you get when you come here. Galatians is the book about the law, that the law is no longer the thing that saves us. It never was the thing that though are people like Judaizers who are trying to use the law as a means of gaining favor with God. And so he has put down the law as a means by which we gain favor with God or salvation. And he says, I want to put that aside and want us to live by grace. And then what happens is this, that as they live by grace, they begin to think they have freedom to do just about whatever they want to do. So whatever is the urge of the body, that is what they begin to do. So Paul wants to address this problem of this. We have this challenge of extremes. Uh, There on the one hand is this legalism of doing what I think is believed is the right thing. On the other hand is license where I'm free to do anything I want. And, and we don't want to have a, a relationship with God where legalism tells us every little jot and tittle that I'm supposed to do, and it's sort of a checkbox Christianity. On the other hand, I don't want to have the kind of license where there is no law, there is lawlessness, so that I can do anything I want to do. And there are a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus who live sort of this lawless life, and I'll give you examples in a moment. But let me read the text. First of all, verse 13, you notice the problem. Here's the problem. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Yes, freedom from the law. 
Only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here's the solution. You love and serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Jesus in Matthew and Luke. And then here is the challenge of the consequences in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. And so they were having these internal strife that is taking place, biting, devouring, consuming one another, not exactly the kind of hallmark of what you think of in a church. Well, these are brand new believers and they're sort of learning how to balance between legalism and license. As we go through this, you're going to find this going to be a little helpful uh, cheat sheet as you look through the outline on the front and the back. I'm going to refer to the back side in a moment. But I wanted to begin by showing us this important area of this problem. Here is the problem, and it's happening in the churches today. This is 2,000 years ago this is going on. This is still going on in the churches today. The problem is this. We're turning our freedom into opportunities for our flesh. Now, what is he referring to there? Again, the text is, For you were called to freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh. Two key words there, flesh. Flesh is something that I feel in my body. It's the desire that bubbles up. If you've been uh, someone who has been addicted to drugs, you have this, this feeling of desire that you need another hit from that drug. And uh, it might be some sort of an addiction. It might be something to do with food. It might be something to do with gambling. We have these urges that are fleshly desires. And then he says, I don't want you to have opportunity for that. The word opportunity is actually a term that is used for a uh, staging place for a war. So I don't want to give you an opportunity where you think you have freedom, that you stage your life so that you fulfill the desires of your flesh. That is something I don't want you to do. A good example of this is in 1 John chapter 2. Let me, I'm going to invite you to pop the little TV screen up here, and I want to go through 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Notice these words. Is it going to go up? It's not going to go up. It is going to go up. Through the magic of electricity. Because I want to show you three words that are on this screen here. 1 John is writing. He talks about the flesh as well. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, notice these three things that I've highlighted in the yellow. This is kind of, I don't know this is what John intended, but this is the way that I'm going to interpret it for you. And that he says, first of all, that all that is in the world, there is the lust of the flesh. Same thing that Paul is talking about. The lust of the flesh is something that I desire. Just to make it really dumbed down simple, on Father's Day, Kirstie gave me a loaf of cinnamon bread from Costco because she knows I love cinnamon. And I love cinnamon with lots of icing on the top. And you put it in the toaster, and the smell of the toaster, oh my goodness, it's like there's all kind of fleshly desires that are coming my way. And so there is this fleshly desire for cinnamon toast. I love that cinnamon toast. It's all gooey and you can see the cinnamon all wrapped around inside of it. And if it's baked a little bit under, underbaked, so it's a little bit gooey, perfect. And so we have the lust of the flesh. And so what happens is as soon as I see lust of the eyes, 
when I look at that loaf, I say to myself, I need to have a piece of that bread. I did it just yesterday. I'm sitting there watching the Tour de France, and my mind begins to think about that loaf of cinnamon bread. And so then I begin to have a desire. And then I open up the freezer, and I actually look at it and try to find a piece that has extra icing on the top because I want to see what I'm going to do. And then here's where the pride of life comes in. The boastful pride of life is, Dave, you're entitled to this. This is yours. Go for it. Your daughter gave it to you because she loves you. It was on Father's Day. It doesn't matter if you're going to become even more obese than you already are. <laughs> Just put it aside. Don't worry about consequences. Because, Dave, it's all about what your flesh desires. It's all about what your eyes see because you are entitled to this. And this is the sort of a chain of reaction that happens, that we begin to have these lusts of the flesh, and I think that's the way God has made me, and this is a desire that is in my body, and then I begin to look around and my eyes see that, yeah, these are opportunities that I should indulge in, and then we begin to get down here. The boastful pride of life is where I am entitled to to this because it's all about me and what my desires are. And God or anyone else better not get in my way of fulfilling what is my fleshly desire because it feels normal to me. This is the danger. When my fleshly desires are acted on on a regular basis, it becomes a normal way of life. And God says, I want to intervene. I don't want you to feel something, look for something, and then with a spirit of entitled entitlement, proudly go after it. So he says, I want you to put that aside. And so here is what happens in our flesh. Here's one summary statement the way I'd put it. Our presumed freedom. I do what I want, even if it's not right. And that's called selfishness. My flesh desires this, it may not be right for me to do it according to some people, but if my flesh desires it, who are you to deny me what I think is my rightful privilege? So I have freedom to do these things. You know, it's a kind of a silly example, but some years ago when I was digging out some boysenberry bushes that I planted because I thought it'd be cool to have boysenberries in my backyard and I'm telling you right now, I'll save you a lot of headache. Don't ever plant boysenberry bushes in your backyard. They take over like weeds. Just go to the store and buy some. <laughs> and so as I was digging them out with a pitchfork in the hot summer day, there was a dog on the other side of the fence, of a redwood fence that we had at the time. A little rickety fence, to be sure. But that dog, every time I would pitchfork into the ground to get some of those roots out of there, he would bark and bark, and then he began to bounce on the fence. He'd jump and bounce on the fence. He would shake the fence. And every time, I couldn't do anything without that dog barking. I was so frustrated and angry. My flesh was taking over. And then as I continued to pitchfork out and the dog began to bounce off the fence, the bounce hit it, the dog hit it. So it's a big boxer dog is what it was. And the fence just collapsed into my yard. And he was standing on top of the fence. And I'm standing there about seven feet away with my pitchfork. And he's standing there 
looking at me, growling at me. And I was so angry, I said in my mind, go ahead, make my day. I was ready to spear him. And fortunately, he backed away, and we're still good friends with the neighbor. The neighbor happened to be another pastor, so I didn't think it would look good in the paper to pastor kills pastor's dog. But what happens, see, this is what happens. Opportunities. Paul says, don't turn these opportunities into the action of the flesh. We have opportunities. That was my opportunity to do a fleshly thing. A fleshly thing of anger, revenge, destruction. And sometimes it's not physical. Sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's attitudinal. Sometimes it's relational. And we have these opportunities. God knows there will be many opportunities for you and I to act on our flesh. And Satan knows that. He knows how weak we are in areas of our flesh. So Satan comes along and convinces us, you've got freedom to do what you want. Don't worry about whether it's right or not. You should be able to act in freedom on your flesh. That's what Paul's battling against, the Galatians, for you and me. Let me show you what I think are some examples of freedom turning into opportunities of the flesh. For example, these are listed on your outline for your easy reading if you need. Sometimes there is freedom to not be active in the local church because I'm spiritual but not religious. There's a lot of people today that don't think coming to a place like this to do what we're doing right now, to listen to a guy like me hammer you with things that are hard to hear sometimes. There's a lot of people think that just, I, don't, I shouldn't have to do that. I have freedom to not do that. Whoa. That's an opportunity of the flesh. There is the freedom to sin because Jesus will forgive me. I've known people that said, I will do this because I know Jesus will forgive me. So I'll do it and be forgiven. Good. Records even. Freedom to sexually be, uh, to act out sexually because God has made me this way. This is a biggie today. Satan's using this all over the place. There's all kinds of scenarios where that is happening. Where I have been made this way, I have freedom to be this way. God wouldn't have made me this way uh, if he didn't want me to be this way. And we do that. I had a fellow in our first church who uh, went to prison as a pedophile, and he told me as I visited him in prison, he says that his pedophilia, his acting on his pedophilia with his own children, he told me it just felt normal. It felt normal for me. This is what happens when the flesh is continually acted upon and not resisted by biblical truth and the Holy Spirit's power of conviction, it becomes normalized. And then society begins to normalize those things. And then you're the idiot if you oppose it. There is this freedom to sin because my circumstances are so difficult and desire is so strong. If you had gone through what I went through, if you lived with this person like I live with this person, you would understand why I need to act out the way I do. I have freedom to do this because my circumstances are so hard. If you think your circumstances are so hard and so you act out in a way that is fleshly in terms of anger and revenge and resentment and lack of reconciliation, read through some of the Psalms of King David. King David rails against God for all the enemies that are attacking him. 
I mean, he says, God, would you just destroy all those people? I hate all these people. I mean, he just un- bears his soul before God that God is so unfair that he's, not, that he's allowing these enemies to take him out, including his own son Absalom. And then David always wraps up his song. He says, but God, you are God. So I come and I praise you. His circumstances were terrible, but he did not have freedom to act on them as his flesh wanted him to. There's freedom to leave my marriage because God wants me to be happy. Love to see a show of hands. How many people have heard that? I've heard that for 40 years of doing this kind of, jo- this kind of work. That therefore I need to be happy. I deserve to be happy. I have freedom to leave my marriage because that's what I want. There's freedom to live together before marriage to learn if we really are compatible. We've had couples here who want to get married here. And I've known couples who have lived together. And you ask them why. Well, I didn't know it was wrong, number one. But number two, how would we ever know whether we are compatible if we don't live together? And so there's freedom that they exercise in contrast to what Scripture teaches. Freedom to not forgive someone who hurt me because they treated me unfairly. Some people think they've got a platform for non-forgiving attitude because, well, I was un- it was unfair. How dare someone like that? And then there's freedom to revenge, seek revenge because well, the person was wrong and they deserved it. So these are ways in which my flesh drives my life to act in contrary fashion of biblical mandates, Christ-like holiness, and God-honoring Christian testimony. And we need to be careful. These are just some examples of how my life turns away from God because I have freedom. I think I have freedom. But Paul's saying you don't have freedom to do those things. You don't have freedom to sin. So therefore, he gives this calling. Through love, I want you to serve one another. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked, this is the quote of Christ, Christ is asked, What's the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You didn't ask for it, but I'll give it to you anyways. The second is like it, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that should be enough for us. It just, God said it, and I know that it's right, and should I should always do it. The problem is that we know this, but we don't do it. There are people that we think that we don't have to love the way God loves them. That becomes the problem. Because otherwise, that's why Paul could have had this message done in two minutes. If I asked you, how many of you think that you shouldn't have to love? Well, I hope that there's nobody who raises their hand. How many think that every, we, should, we should just love everybody, and then we could just take the offering and go home? Because I presume that we all agree. But the problem is we don't act on it. Why don't we act on the concept of love the way God demonstrates his love toward us, even while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. God did not wait for Dave Mitchell to get his life together, holy, God-honoring, faithful, before Jesus died for Dave Mitchell. God says, Dave, you're a wretch. You're going to go to hell. You're a sinner. You're in rebellion against me. But I still love you. I'm still going to act on my love. I'm going to send my son to die for you. And then in his death, I hope that that kindness will draw you to myself. So God says, go out and do likewise. Don't wait for people to get their lives together to love them. 
Love them in the midst of their messy lives. Love them in the midst of the ugliness of their lives. Love them in the resentment that's in their heart. Love them anyways. Just love them because that's what God does. And God loves us not because we're lovable, but because he's loving. And he's a better, more perfect Mrs. Wilson who understands that we're never going to be that lovable to God because he's perfect and holy. So God invites us into that. It's interesting, I did a little research this week on friend. The word friend, I don't know how many of you knew this. I didn't know this until this, this week. It comes from the same Indo-European word as freedom. Friend and freedom come from that same word, where a friend is one who gives freedom to others because they love them. And it's interesting that Paul is talking about freedom. He's talking about love, that he wants us to exercise that love. And Philippians 2 is this wonderful passage. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, presumably the answer is yes. If any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Joy and I made this uh, passage, our passage, for our marriage. And uh, I try to live up to it as best I possibly can, and occasionally I fail. I won't go on. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And this is the phrase I love. I love them all, but I wanted to highlight this one. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, and we do. We have to look out for our own personal interest but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Don't hang on to something that you don't rightfully have to hang on to. God gave up the glory of heaven and his son Jesus to come and die for us. So he didn't grasp and hold on. My rights are to be deified in heaven. I gave that up so I can come and think that you're more important than me. If I always have the attitude that the people around me, what they think and feel, are very significantly important, and that I will always weigh out how what I do affects them, I begin to move into this world where my fleshly desires are diminished and my relationship with others is more loving. That is what God calls us to have that kind of an attitude where our biblical freedom is this. In contrast to our personal presumed freedom, our biblical freedom is I do what is right even if it's not what I want to do. That's selflessness. So we turn from what I want to do because my flesh desires it even if it's not right to a selflessness where I'm going to do what's right even if it's not what I want. And it's hard. It's hard to resist a fleshly desire that says I want a pound of flesh or I have this spirit of resentment or an unforgiving attitude or a desire for things to put into my body that I shouldn't be putting into my body. I have these fleshly desires, but I want to do what's right. So I would deny what I want. And that's what you call maturity. Maturity is rising to that level where suddenly my desires 
and my wants are in submission to biblical truth and holiness. That's a whole other level of maturity. When you're a child, when you're two, when you're three, you do what you want, right? You just let it out. You don't like something, you start screaming. You have a tantrum. You can be in the middle of Albertsons and Target, and you can have a tantrum if you're a two-year-old. And everybody look, oh, what's wrong with that mom, you know? But it's a two-year-old. They do what they want. If you're 22, 42, or 62, and you do that behavior, they will lock you up as a 5150 insane person. So, maturity is where what I want, scream and get all upset, is in submission to what is right. And I have control over my fleshly desires. You know, I hear a lot about cops in the world today, and I occasionally hang out with some cops. I want to tell you a wonderful story about an officer that helps to set the record straight for people in law enforcement. On July the 12th in 1986, Stephen McDonald was an officer in New York uh, City, and he was patrolling through uh, the big park there, Central Park. Came across three kids, and they had a bicycle, and he was asking them whether that bicycle was stolen because there was a property stolen report that had been put out. As he was talking to three kids, one kid pulled out a gun, shot the officer in the head, the neck, and the arm. Put him in the hospital, and in the hospital, the doctor told his wife that your husband is paralyzed from the neck down. He'll never walk again. He spent the next 18 months in that hospital and finally was discharged. He just died a few months ago after that terrible assault on him. But one of the things that caught my attention about this officer, about Stephen, was the fact that years after he was assaulted by this kid, he forgave the kid. And that's what made the headline. He wrote this. He says, Through the family and the friends that God put in my life and their prayers, God spoke to me and said, Will you love this boy who shot you? And the best way that I could love him was to forgive him. Left to my own abilities, I don't think I would have done it. See, my flesh, my flesh, even I'm going to read about this guy, my flesh says, No. You're letting the guy off the hook. He should be in jail the rest of his life. This officer says, no, left to my own fleshly desires, yeah, that's probably what I would have done. But God has called me to something else, and I know that I would have died a long time ago had I not listened to God, said yes to God, and followed the example of Jesus Christ. And I loved that kid, and I forgave that kid. That's what made the headlines of this guy's life as he was buried a few months ago. His son, Connor, is also a New York City police sergeant, and he spoke of his parents. He says, My dad did more than most able-bodied fathers could ever do with their sons. My parents created the most phenomenal life out of such darkness. It was due to their unmatched, unconditional devotion and love for each other, which I witnessed from the beginning of my life. When we love beyond what I want, when I love beyond what my flesh calls me to do, when I rise above the carnal, 
putrid area of my life that sometimes makes me want to do things that I know are wrong, but I just feel the desire to do it anyways. When I rise above that, God makes headlines out of people like that, like this officer. Because when you don't do those things properly, bad things can happen. When I don't love the way God calls me to love, bad things happen. So Paul says, here's some consequences. He says in verse 15, very directly, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. There is something that happens when you get consumed. You bite, devour. These are terms, bite, devour, are used of animals that are struggling to battle for life as they're battling each other. He says what happens to Christians, even Christians, is that we begin to bite and devour and we consume one another because we don't understand the concept that my flesh calls me to bite and devour. My flesh, there are some people, there are some situations where I want to bite and devour. My flesh drives me to want to feel that way. And then the Spirit of God comes and says, wait a second. I've called you to a higher calling. And that calling is, is so, it's so basic, and I just feel like it's silly to have to even say it, but it's this, this law of love, of rising above what I want to do what is right. So God puts that before us. He encourages us to do that. Now, living by the law of love is not always easy. I'm going to change topic for just a moment because I want us to love God the way he loves us. And one of the things that has come to my attention as a pastor here is there's a lot of discussion that goes on about the worship at Calvary Church. Have any of you had a conversation lately about the worship here at Calvary Church? Well, none. Okay, well, I'll move on. It's, uh, we've had some changes that have taken place, and I've gotten a lot of comments, uh, emails and registration cards and phone calls and, and the like like that. So I just wanted to take a few moments because worship is my ability to love God. So I want to talk a little bit about worship here at Calvary Church, if you will. Some people have asked for that and think that we've not always done well in transparency on that. And also there are some rumors going around. So I wanted to disavow some rumors. Here's a rumor that I heard, that Dave, that would be me, I like to refer to myself in the third person, that Dave is going to leave in August, and he'll never be back again. As far as I know, unless the elders are up to something, I will be here in September. I might even be here in October. I might be here in October in 2018, besides. I have no plans to go anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. You're stuck with me whether you like me or not. And so I didn't, I didn't, mean, I didn't mean it to come out that way so you felt like you needed to clap. Um, but I just want to let you know there, there is no plans for that. I also heard the rumor that Ron is leaving us. Ron is not leaving us. Ron's going to live to be 100. So most of us in this room, Ron's going to be playing and singing at our funerals. And so we, we need him to do that. So Ron and I have been working together for like 20 years now. And I hope that we can continue to do that. So it's been a blessing. And so I'm thankful for that. But there's some things that are changed. And there's some things that won't change. In worship, there are timeless principles. Let me give you some timeless principles about worship. Worship should be biblically correct songs. I love to sing songs that speak to biblical truth about God. I don't like to sing songs that feel like I could be singing it to my girlfriend in high school. Just me. 
Worship should be passionate, done in spirit of truth, as Jesus said. Worship is timeless that is consistent and faithful in heart and attitude. Worship is, cons- is timeless that has music that can engage multiple generations. Worship where you select songs that are singable for corporate settings. Worship where we maintain a consistent volume each week. Now, I get a lot of comments about, it was too loud today. We have a decibel thing back there. That's scientific. And the guys and the girls in the sound booth there, they watch that decibel thing. And they keep the volume below a certain number. I think it's like 85. I don't know. It's somewhere in that range. And 85 and anywhere there is okay for all of our human ears. Sometimes people say, well, that was louder and that was not as loud. And yet the decibel thing never changes. So I just want to be clear. We do care. We don't want to hurt your ears. I don't want my ears to be hurting. We control that. Sometimes certain instruments make it sound like it's louder, but it's not. We talk about this every Tuesday. We go through the service and we talk about well, that message was terrible or well, that music was great or something like that. That's probably what next Tuesday is going to be right now. I can already predict it. But one thing we talk about is to make sure that we have a monitor on, this, on the volume. And so certain instruments just sound louder, but they are not louder than the decibel or the science of, of, of all that stuff. I've told you as much as I know about that, so I better stop. There are some things that are changing. The leaders that are on the platform will change from any given week. We have an array of wonderful leaders on various instruments, and they, they vary from week to week. Each Sunday service will vary from with times of passionate, robust, and sometimes quiet. You heard some a cappella this morning. You heard some instruments. We, we love to vary it so that it, it really seasons our hearts to come before God and love Him appropriately. We'll have appropriate lighting and images on the screen and on the, on the lights and the, and, the, and the top. And It's here to enhance the worship, not to distract from the worship. We'll have a variety of personal responses such as communion, kneeling, prayer stations, and the like. They change. And the theme of the biblical sermon will change. Now let me give you some other principles that will guide us in this. To help us to understand why we worship and how we love God, here is one thing. We need to move from a consumer-minded life where I get what I want to a God-centered life where I give him what he deserves. God is our audience. We are his choir. When we come together, we're not here because I want to hear that song or I want to hear this song. We come corporately. We come corporately so that we can say, God, we honor you. We cherish you. How great is our God, we say. So God is the audience of our worship. And that means certain things. So that we can unite together with one voice, with every generation of music that facilitates a passion, Christ-centered worship. It means that multiple generations can gather together. Isn't it great, as I looked on the platform here of our worship leaders, we have people that are above 50, maybe even above 60, and we have people below 50, maybe even below 30. And one of our desires is that we will be changed by the gospel so that we can love like Jesus across all cultures and all generations. And we want to have instruments that, I use this word specifically, facilitates 
Sometimes there are occasions where it feels like the drums are too loud or the guitar is too loud or there's too much this and too much that. We're all human. It's not intentional. We're not trying to distract. We don't need people who are performing on the stage. We need people who are leading us into worship on the stage. And so our desire and always our goal is that it facilitates passionate worship of Christ. So I'm asking for your patience when sometimes, because we have different people that get up here and they play different ways and they have different ways that they express the use of that instrument. But it's not intentional to try to distract any more than when I preach a terrible sermon or use a lousy illustration or fumble what a Greek word means. I don't do that on purpose. I'm human and I make mistakes. Let's be patient with one another. If joy can put up with all my problems for 40 years of marriage, then, well. (laughs) In Revelation chapter 5, I put these verses down here. It says this, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the, the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, A loud voice! There's no decibel monitors up in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven on the earth and under the earth and the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen! And the elders fell down and they worshipped. That's heaven's worship. We want to have that kind of worship where everybody unites together. All generations we have the kind of music. So we're not using terms like celebration worship service and elevation worship service. We're trying to incorporate so that we have the same preacher on Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, same preacher at 11 o'clock, same musicians at 9 o'clock, same musicians at uh, 11 o'clock. Because we'd like to set the table that we can come together at any hour and we can worship together not specialized, not consumer-oriented, but that we can all unite together. And this morning, I love the worship this morning. It invited us into praising God. And we'll do some more of it here in just a moment. When our kids were young, Kirsty was always kind of a chore at, at the meal. Often she would knock over her glass of milk and it would spill everywhere. And Kirsty. And then we'd have meat, and she wouldn't eat it because it's too chewy. It's too chewy. I was so frustrated with her. She's like four. I still get frustrated when I think about it. And we said, well, Kirstie, if you don't eat that meat at dinner time, you're going to eat it at breakfast tomorrow morning. And she did. (laughs) She did. Because when we come together around the meal, here's the meal. We're not going to cook a meal for Kirstie, then a meal for Jessica, and a meal for Joy, and a meal for Dave. we got one meal. Here's the table. Let's dine together. And that's sort of what we try to do here. we got one meal that's called worshiping God with a worship that crosses generations, that's passionate and Christ-centered, that's using instruments that facilitate, not distract. That's our goal. Believe me, that's our goal. And we want to pursue that. We want to have worship that learns how to worship our Lord with a selfless heart of love for Him and one another, where I humbly learn to submit my desires for the greater good of serving Christ through His church. 
where I put down what I maybe prefer for the greater good of what God deserves. Sometimes there are certain songs that I just don't get. But I'm here to worship Jesus. And as best I can do that, I want to do that. And so generally we don't want to have those times, but sometimes we have those moments. We gather together like it says in Revelation 7, one of the answers and said, these are the, in heaven, these are those who are clothed with white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? Who are they, where have they come from? And my Lord, you know. And he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne, and they serve him day and night in the temple. And he sits on the throne, will spread his tabernacle over them. These people suffered on earth, and they're entering heaven as martyrs. And the people in heaven are saying, well, who are the new kids? Who invited them? And God says, these are the people who suffered in the tribulation, and they are now coming to serve me and worship. I love that concept that the week go throughout our week. Some of you have heartaches that really burden you. I know that. And I want this to be a place where you come on Sunday, and like these dear saints who suffered in the tribulation, you come before God. Say, God, help me with the burdens of life as I come to love you, praise you, honor you. I want our corporate worship to be a place of a soothing to our souls, but also a glorification of God. Where We have that kind of passion. And sometimes that means selflessly I engage with one another. Not for my consumer-mindedness, but for Christ-centeredness. And then finally, my last point, is that sometimes we need to learn new songs of praise while still expressing the familiar historic hymns. We're going to sing hymns here. I love the hymns. Ron and I grew up with these hymns. Sometimes we have to freshen them up a little bit, but we also are going to learn new songs. We don't learn a new song five times in one service, but we want to introduce them. And new songs in Revelation 5 says, And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals, for you were slain and purchased before God with the blood of men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There are so many passages about new songs. We will learn new songs, but we'll sing the historic songs. We want to combine them together. We want to be a body that worships the Lord. Now, the choir is off on the summer, and I like to have a more private conversation with the choir once they gather back together. But some of you are part of the choir. I love the choir. We want the choir to continue to be part of Calvary Church's ministries. But I need to have a conversation with them privately in September to help them to understand where we're going. But we want to have this engagement where we're all together serving God together. Whether you come first hour or second hour, you're going to receive the worship of God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. I hope that makes some sense. If you have questions, just you can send me an email. I'll try to respond. But I just want to help quell maybe some of the conversations and even some of the rumors that maybe it's not based upon fact, but it's just I've heard it from her and heard it and begins to distort. But let me pray for us. I'm going to pray for our offering. We're going to receive our offering at this time as well. And as we receive the offering, there's this thing called the card that's in the chair rack in front of you. If you'd like to put any comments on there or any prayer requests on that card, I invite you to put in the offering as we pass the offering at this time and allows us to be able to communicate as a family where we grow together. 
in the kind of love that Paul has invited us to. Let me pray. Help us, Father, as we come before you now. Help us to honor you and to love you. Help us to serve you well. Help us to be people that worships you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because that's love. We want to love you, Father. And help us to love one another. Help us to love people around us. Help us to love people that are different from us. Help us to love people who have messy lives. Help us to love people who are not very lovable. Just help us to love the way you have called us to love. And God, it's hard. My flesh, my flesh stops me from loving. God, I confess that. So help me, Father, to put aside my fleshly opportunities and to love you the way you've called me to love you and to love others the way you love them. Whatever that may mean, sometimes it's speaking the truth in love. Sometimes it's encouraging one another in love. Sometimes it's correcting someone in love. But God, whatever that may be, help us to do it for you and help us now to worship you well. Help our hearts to be right with you. Help us to selflessly come before you. Help us as your choir to worship you as we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.